I love worshiping with Fairfax Bible Church. You guys are such an amazing church. I love your pastor, Hang. He's doing such a great job. Every time that I've interacted with him, yeah, every single time that I've interacted with him, he, he is so quick to dive into how my life is going and to take me to the Lord in prayer. He's such an encouragement. I hope you guys have been encouraged by him, and he's doing an awesome job. Just that I can tell from a distance, and I trust that the Lord is working in your church. And I am praying for you guys regularly, um, praying for your elders, um, Matt and Dave. I don't know, is Dave? I haven't seen. Oh, there you are. Hey. Um, Praying for you guys regularly, and trusting the Lord is guiding, and he's working in this pastoral search. And he is the Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He is the ultimate pastor of this church. He promised that he's going to build his church, and he's been faithful in that for 2,000 years. He's going to keep doing that. You guys can trust him in that. So we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1. And the reason I'm doing Genesis chapter 1 is because I'm about to start preaching through Genesis with my church. I'm actually preaching this message next Sunday and kicking off Genesis in my church, and um, so, but it's such a foundational text to all of Scripture that I thought it would be good as a one-off sermon as well. I'm really thankful for this opportunity that I can minister to you guys. My family wasn't able to come because we've been out a number of Sundays for August for vacations, and um, they're just, my, my wife and kids are just needed at our church Uh, this morning. But I'm thankful that I can be here, and Lord willing, I'll be preaching for you guys a couple more times at least in the near future, so thankful for that. Um, Now, actually, why don't I pray? Why don't I pray right now? Let's just really set our hearts on God. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would move right now through your word. This is your inspired text, Lord, that you uh, brought to us through Moses Uh, You've preserved for us, Lord, and you make clear through all of your revelation that it is relevant for us today, God, that it's speaking to us today. And Lord, so I pray, Lord, that your your spirit would help attune our hearts and minds to you, help us to hear what you have for us, give us the grace, give us the power to respond, to change course, Lord, to align ourselves with your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning. And now before I jump into it, could I, I want to just kind of pull the room a little bit. What kind of goes through your mind when you hear Genesis 1? Uh-oh, pastor's preaching on Genesis 1, the creation account. What are some of the things maybe, just throw it out, that maybe pop out in your mind? In the beginning, good, yep, absolutely. What's that? Animals, animals. Animals are awesome. We get animals. Anybody a little bit nervous? Like, uh uh-oh, where is he going with this? This is kind of a touchy subject, it seems like, in our culture. Maybe some of you guys have some really hard and big questions relative to, like, is my faith consistent with what's real? Am I believing fairy tales? Does science conflict with faith? I mean, these are a lot of questions that we have. In today's day and time, you guys are really close. I think a, a number of you are either graduates or at George Mason University. Um, you know, there's a lot of critique in our modern era about the Bible, about Christianity relative to this chapter. Because we've been told and we've been instructed, and culture has made it clear, the academic world, if you will, has made it clear that our faith, Scripture, is not compatible with science. 
with what's real, what can be known, all those kinds of ideas. Those are the things that pop into my mind. But what I want you guys to do is we, I'm going to read through this text. What I'd like for you all to do, though, is to listen to this text, walk through it as I read it on your phone, on your script, on your Bible, and try to put yourself into the mindset of the original readers of Genesis chapter 1. You see, Moses, one of the greatest leaders in, in, in Israel's ancient history, was the one that wrote Genesis. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. God inspired him, he wrote it down, and he gave it to the nation of Israel just as they were about to enter in to their promised land. Now, there's a lot of history that happened to Israel before that point. I think a lot of times as modern readers, we think that we are now reading an account and this whole book is now a chronological, you know, unveiling of everything that happened. But this was written in a particular context at a particular time. You know, this, this nation had, go back, you know, 40 years, they, they had been rescued by God in an incredible series of events from slavery in Egypt, right? God worked incredibly powerfully, rescued them out of, of slavery. Then they go into the promised land. They meet God at Sinai. They get all of the law. Then they go up to the edge of the promised land. They send spies into the, the land that God had promised to them. And all the spies, with the exception of two, came back with negative reports. They told the nation that this isn't possible. This is a bad plan. There's enemies in there. There is strength. There are fortifications. There are powers that we can't defeat. It would have been much better if we had just stayed in Egypt. Two of the spies, you guys know their names, Joshua and Caleb, these were faithful men that trusted God. And they said, it doesn't really matter what's the, on the other side of that river. What matters is the God that's on our side. They gave their speech to the nation, but the nation rejected what they said. In Hebrews, the writer tells us that they sinned and it was an unbelief spread through the nation. Because of that, God did not allow them to enter into the promised land, that generation so they had to wander for 40, day, 40, for 40 years in the desert while that whole generation died off. So now this new generation of people is about to enter into the promised land. Maybe some of them were children in Egypt so they can remember a little bit about what God had done for them. Maybe a large number of them, though, were actually born in the wilderness. This is all very new to them. And so that's the context of, of what this is written in. And by the way, that's a really important uh, 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 rule about Bible interpretation, is you want to make sure that you are understanding what did the original writer mean to say? What would the hearers of the original writing have heard when we're reading it? And then from there, we draw to application. Now, sometimes that work is easy, sometimes that work can be really hard with Scripture. But it is not fair, and you, could, you would say this about any kind of writing today, it's not fair to open up the newspaper and read into any op-ed what you want to read from it. The way you lovingly read anything that anybody writes is by trying to understand what they're trying to communicate. 
You don't get to put words into the mouth of an author, much less when the author is God himself working through Moses. So we got to understand what, what would they have understood, start there and then go to our application for today. So let's go ahead and walk through this text. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is like an intro statement to this whole introductory statement. He's, this is what happened, guys. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Summed it all up right there. Verse 2, he kind of sets the scene for this narrative. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. In any kind of story, biblical narratives included, there's always a setup to the story. What's the set the scene? There's some kind of problem that needs to be solved in this story. The problem is that this whole thing, expanse of no form or void, darkness over the deep, all mysterious. And then we have our main character comes in. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Something's about to happen. Something's about to go down. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So day one. Verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse. From the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which, which is, their, is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was morning and there was evening the third day. So here we have in these first three days, God has pushed back the darkness. God has pushed back the waters. He has put a, a line and a barrier of where those things need to stay. And of course, we know that later on, he can remove that barrier. He does that in the flood. He can remove the barrier of the light. He does that in the ninth uh, plague over Egypt. These are barriers that God has said, this is over here and this is over there. He sets that up. We're giving the, all the chaos and all the dark, all that's being pushed back. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens 
to separate the day from the night and let there be signs for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with, the, with, uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and Fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You know, in those days, it was not uncommon if, if your uh, place where you lived was ruled by a foreign king, that foreign king would build uh, images of himself and put them in that land to make it clear that I am in charge. This statue of me makes it clear that I rule this place. God has created everything and then he puts in a new being that has the image of himself to rule all of his creation. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, making it clear that men and women together represent the complete image of God, meant to rule, representing him and his authority over the earth and all of creation. Animals, fish, birds, the whole thing. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here we have the completion of that tension that started off in verse 2. Can the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, over the face of the deep, in the darkness and the void, can he bring uh, light out of darkness? Can he bring order into chaos? He can, and he did. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the, seventh, the sixth day. And then on into chapter 2, we got our seventh day, and this is the epilogue of this story. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, as I said before, I believe that Genesis is foundational. The Pentateuch is foundational to all of Scripture. And I believe that there are foundational ideas in Genesis chapter 1 that the whole thing stands on. Foundational ideas that God wants to communicate to us. God was communicating these foundational ideas about Himself to the people of Israel as they're about to enter in to the promised land and face these enemies that they're told that they cannot defeat in their own power. And I think that we can miss those foundational ideas that God is communicating here because we can get distracted by modern questions that get asked of this text that God isn't necessarily trying to answer in this text. You know, we want to know things like, so when he says a day, does he mean 24 literal, literal days? You know, we ask questions like, is it literally six days of creation plus one day? We ask questions like, uh, is the earth young or is the earth very, very old? Did God use evolution? Does evolution itself uh, prove that this is not real, that this is not true, that maybe the entire book and the existence of God is not real? Those are all very good questions. I don't want to minimize those questions, okay? I don't want to sound like I'm looking down on those big, hard questions that you might be asking. And in my opinion, and what I've researched and what I've read, there are very, very good answers to those hard, hard questions. But this text is communicating to us foundational ideas about the character of God, not necessarily getting to those questions first. So if those are the questions that we're trying to ask and not listening to what God is trying to tell us here, then we miss the bigger things that He's trying to tell us. We cannot ask our questions of God until we first listen to Him. You know, think, think about, imagine yourself entering the throne room of God and all the glory and the majesty and all the incredible sights and the power, the rumbles of thunder. His voice just causes everyone, your hair to stand up. You approach the throne room and he begins to say something to you and you shush him. 
and you say, hold up, I, I got some things I need to ask you first. Answer my questions and then we'll hear what you have to say to me. It doesn't work like that, guys. It doesn't work like that. Please hear me. Those, those are, there are good questions to ask. I don't want to minimize those questions. I would encourage you to seek the answers. There's great answers to those questions, in my opinion. But if we're unwilling to hear from God and let Him speak, and then we listen and we respond, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. God speaks, we listen. God commands, we act. We don't talk to God and He responds. He talks to us and we respond to Him. And I think that's the heart attitude of how we're supposed to approach this text. And, and Christians, we cannot let the bullies of the world tell us how and what this text is supposed to say and what questions it's supposed to answer. You know, there are people, especially in the hard sciences in academia, the hard sciences that really are bullies. And they act like their area of study answers all questions that humans have. It is ridiculous. It's this idea of this, this unified theory of everything, as if science has an answer to every question that people ask. And I use the word bully because a lot of times they are bullies, and they aren't just bullies to Christians and people of faith. They're bullies to all the other soft sciences on that campus that act like art and literature and the humanities and history and all those things have nothing to say that science isn't preeminent over. And it is a ridiculous thing to say. Science can answer questions like, how do we manipulate the genetic makeup of a human being? It can answer questions like that. How do you do that? The Nazis famously tried to do that, didn't they? With thousands and thousands of helpless victims. Science does not answer, should we do that? It can, it can answer a lot, but it cannot answer certain questions. And anybody that tells you that it has an answer for all things is being a bully. They're trying to do something more than what they can. Science can only speak to the natural and observable world. It cannot go beyond that. And anybody who says it goes beyond that is being flat out dishonest with you. And I think they're a bully. I, think, I don't think that's an unfair characterization. Now, there are real questions, and there are real debates to have. That's fine. But don't come telling me that in your lab, you're going to have an answer for certain questions, like, should we experiment on human beings against their will? There's no answer to that question in a lab. That doesn't exist. So, that's the way I think we need to approach this text. It's not, God, you need to answer certain questions for me. It's, God, what are you saying to us? What do you say to us here that we need to respond? And so three foundations, that is a long in introduction for three foundational things that God wants us to know about himself in Genesis 1. And the rest of the sermon is not going to be proportionally long compared to the introduction. So don't get too nervous. But I think that it's an important setup for this. Now, there's a lot of other things that we can draw this text. Um, I'm going to be breezing over some stuff. There is so much here. 
But I want to just hit on these three foundational things that God wants us to know about Himself. And it really, the first one flows out of a lot of what I just said. It's number one, I must listen to Jesus and obey because His Word is powerful. Imagine yourself an Israelite standing on the edge of the promised land. You've got your sword in hand. You've got all your gear that you've been lugging around for 40 years. You got, it's not just you and your army, but it's like the whole family too. The nursery, the preschool, you know, the kids, I mean, you can't dismiss them. The battle's about to start, dismiss the kid, no. They're all coming in. We have this formidable army. What kind of questions are you asking? God, you're not asking like, is this 24 hour, four literal days? Is the earth younger? I mean, it's like you're asking, is God's word powerful? Ten times in this text, it says, and God said. Ten is God's number for completeness. Ten times he says, let there be. So ten spoken words from God brought the universe into existence. And if you're an Israelite at this time, you're also thinking, you know what? There's also ten laws that he gave us. The moral law, the Ten Commandments of God that were given to us. I love Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God's commands bring results. God's Word gives results. And, of course, in the New Testament, this whole idea of God's Word gets expanded. And we get to see that it's also Jesus Himself. John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has overcome it. The imagery through Genesis 1 all the way through Scripture, with Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Word of God Himself, Come to bring light into darkness. Come to bring order into chaos to fix what is broken. Paul continues it in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This exalted God, the word of God, humbled himself, became a servant to live a life, die on a cross, raised from the dead to redeem us. The same God, the same word that brought things into existence by his command brings new life into us. But here's the problem. The problem is that despite all that, we still don't listen to Him and we still don't obey. All of creation obeys His commands with the exception of the pinnacle of His creation, mankind. 
I, I love Psalm 19. It, it's such an awesome psalm because it captures all this idea. I wish we had time to go through it. If you guys are in small groups together or if one another, you know, getting together with somebody, you want to break them with the word Psalm 19 has so many of these ideas because it starts off by celebrating the creation and that it all left to existence by his command. And it says the heavens declare the glory of God. But then it gets to the end and the psalmist is humbly and honestly admitting that even though all of that amazing things obeys what he says, I struggle with obeying even the simplest commands of God, Lord, help me to obey your commands. Listen and obey, because His Word is powerful. Guys, we have our ears tuned to a lot of things in this world, a lot of things coming into us, a lot of messages, a lot of good words, a lot of wisdom, a lot of direction, a lot of guidance. But are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to Him, hearing it, and then obeying? Do that because His Word is powerful. His Word is powerful. The second thing that God reveals about Himself that is foundational, foundational, I have nothing to fear because God is providential. I love the word providence. And I think that it's a word that we don't use enough in church culture. You know, we, 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 we say things like God's sovereign, yeah, which is true. That's very good. I mean, you know, he's king. He's in charge. But what I love about the word providence, and I think it's a word maybe that we've kind of lost in our modern Christian culture. It was used a ton more in the past is that providence not only says that God's king, but it also says that he is actively engaged for good in his creation. He's not a distant king just sitting on his throne wondering what's going on over here. He is an engaged, involved, actively working king, providentially working for our good, I have nothing to fear because the Creator God is providentially working. If you are an Israelite, you are headed into the promised land. You've got your sword in your hand. You're wondering, is God provident? Is He working in this for my good? You know, we already saw from Colossians, Paul said that by Jesus, all things hold together. It's not just that He created. He's not just a, like the classic example of the clockmaker who builds the clock, winds it, and then turns it loose. He built it, He wound it, and He is engaged in the details, the intricate details of this world and of this life. Seven is a number that we see throughout this text and seven, Bible scholars say, is how Scripture will communicate this idea of perfection. And look at all the sevens that are in this text. Verse number one, there are seven Hebrew words. So in the original Hebrew, it's seven Hebrew words for verse one. In the beginning, created, God, which in this case is Elohim, the heavens and the earth. Those seven words are 
their equivalent in Hebrew. Elohim, or excuse me, there are 14 Hebrew words in verse 2. So now we have a multiple of seven. So seven Hebrew words, then 14 Hebrew words. 14 divided by 2 is 7. Then there are seven days of creation. Six days of creation plus a seventh day of rest. That became a pattern for all humanity, all humankind. There are 35 exactly Elohims in this text. The Hebrew word for God. 35 is a multiple of seven, right? 35 divided by seven is five, so seven again. There are 21 heavens, multiple seven. There are 21 earths, and there are seven, and it was so. All these things artistically, poetically pointing towards a God that is orchestrating His creation precisely and perfectly the way that He has intended it. And of course, we know that at the end of Genesis, remember in the incredible story of Joseph, what does he say to his brothers? His brothers who had sold him into slavery, abandoned him. What did he say to his brothers? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is even provident over evil. John 8, 28, famous verse. And we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those that are called by Him. All things. He is working through all things in your life providentially for your good. You have nothing to fear in creation when you have a provident creator that knows you, that is looking out for you. Israel feared, here's another little detail, Israel feared the pagan gods. We see that throughout the Pentateuch. The pagans worshipped the stars. The pagans worshipped the sun gods. The pagans worshipped the moon gods. They had all these gods for these created things. And isn't it amazing? I think it's an interesting note. One of the theologians I read this week pointed this out. The stars, the sun, and the moon were actually created on the fourth day. After vegetation, before the fish and the birds, as if it's like this is just other things of creation. And he doesn't even name them. He says the greater light, you know the greater light that's during the day, and then there's the lesser light, you know that lesser light that's during the night. He doesn't even give them the the respect of using the name of the sun and the moon. They're just things that I've created. You have nothing to fear, Israel. Because I'm a providential God that is working all things for your your good. The third thing that God reveals about himself that is foundational is that I can trust God because his design is good. I can trust God because his design is good. God is the designer. He is the creator. The designer and the creator knows the way it's supposed to work. They're the ones that write the instruction booklet. They're the ones that have the, like, the intent of, guys, this is the way it was meant to be. He's the one who said over and over and over, it is good. It is good. Now, I can stand up here and tell you guys, and I know some of you, including Matt, will agree with me, 
that Juan Soto is a very good baseball player. <laughs> and maybe some of you would also agree with this statement. I think that the number one at Chick-fil-A, you know, the combo, chicken sandwich, waffle fries, get some lemonade, that's the best combo in fast food. Now, let's <laughs> get some amens here. Now, those are statements I think are true. I think those are good statements. But there's a couple of things that both of those statements are dependent on. Both of those statements are dependent on something to compare them to. Like, you can't just say Juan Soto is a very good baseball player without having other baseball players to compare him to, right? There has to be something else to compare him to. Same thing with the Chick-fil-A number one. I mean, there has to be a Wendy's number one and a McDonald's and a burger. I mean, there has to be these other combos that we compare, right? That's one thing I'm saying. But then the second thing is that both of them are statements of opinion. And they all depend on the person who's saying it. It's my opinion that Chick-fil-A makes a really good number one combo. I recommend it. Unfortunately, we can't get it today. That's my opinion. Now, what if... It's the God of the universe who's stating the opinion. And what if he's saying it at a time when there's nothing else to compare it to? You guys, I think that what's happening here is he is establishing what is good. Because he is God, I created it, and that is good. That's what he's saying. Now, of course, we know that you turn two chapters and we got a big problem because this good creation gets broken in a big, big way through the sin of mankind. It is not what he meant it to be at the very beginning, no doubt. That is clear. But that same God is the one that's working his plan of redemption, not only of you through faith in Jesus Christ, but also his plan of redemption and restoration of his creation. Do I trust that his plan is good? Again, you're Israel. You're facing into the, to the promised land. Is this a good plan? Is this going to work? God defines what's good. I can trust him. God defines what's good. I can trust him. And again, there are so many voices that are speaking into our lives, telling us a better way, telling us how, no, no, this is the good plan. This is the way it should work. And brothers and sisters, we have to step back and say, no, God's the one that says what's good. And even though it may not look clear to me and it may be like this thing is really messed up right around me right now and these next few steps are just not going to be pleasant, i got to trust the God who made the plan. And I'm going to start to follow him. I can trust God because his design is good. And that is a foundational truth for us, for Scripture and for our lives. God, with his powerful word, with amazing providence, created a good world. I need to listen and obey his word because it is powerful. I have nothing to fear because he is providential, and I can trust him because his design is good.
Those are three foundational things that I believe that God is telling us through Genesis chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2. Let's listen to that and then let's respond to Him. Now, the worship team can come on up and I want to close with an illustration. I've got here a chicken egg. And, um, you know, eggs, it's raw chicken egg. Eggs are an excellent source of protein. I mean, what a great little, like, meal in a box that God's made for us. Is it pretty cool? It also, like, blows my mind that chickens, like, plop one of these things out almost every single day. I, 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 that's what I understand. I'm, I don't know anything about chickens, really, to be honest. But people who have had chickens tell me that, for the most part, every day, the chicken lays, lays a new egg. It's unbelievable. And, and there's, there's three basic parts of this egg, right? I mean, I'm not a scientist, but the three main parts are it's got a shell, it's got a yolk, and it's got the white, the egg white part of it, right? And there is no technology on the planet of made of man that can make this. Yet we have these in plentiful, abundant, cheap supply because we figured out through God's uh, goodness how to raise chickens and produce eggs to feed tons and tons and tons of people. It's absolutely amazing. God made this egg. That is so, so cool. So I'm going to put it inside this box, and I'm going to get all Genesis 3 on this. So it, Genesis 3 comes along, and it gets smashed, right? And I'm going to go ahead and shake this. Hopefully this lid stays on. And, you know, it's a mess inside there, right? But all three of those parts are still there. I mean, the, the shells in there, it's all busted. The egg yolk has been busted. And, you know, there is also no human technology on the planet that can put this egg back together. It can't go back together. And that's what happens at Genesis chapter 3. The egg gets busted. Yeah, we can look out, we can see still God's creativity and a lot of the amazing things that God has made. It's still there, but it is broken. And this does not get fixed under any circumstances outside of a miracle of God. The same thing is true of your life. The same thing is true of my life. My life is filled with brokenness everywhere I step, everywhere I look. The world that I look out into is filled with brokenness. It's like this egg. You don't fix it through human ingenuity, human planning. It takes a miracle of God. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. Now, the challenge as Christians is that we're living in the between place where we've seen him begin to put things back together in my life, but there's still a lot to get fixed. We look forward and hope to that. But guys, trust the God who made the plan and said that it was good. Trust that he is the only one that can make the impossible happen in your life. And he is going to do it. He has saved you. You've seen him work in the past. You've seen him change your heart from a heart of stone and dead to life. You've seen him begin to put lives back together. Do you trust him to continue to do that into the future? Guys, he's our answer for the brokenness that we see in our world. Let's trust his plan and the gospel that he is working Jesus Christ, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this word and we trust you. We trust your word. You are the creator. God, we have nothing in this world to fear. And Lord, I pray that you would help Fairfax Bible Church to become a church that is listening to you 
and doing what you say. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.